Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kristen Turner. Today, in a first for me, rather than interviewing the author of a new book, I'm talking to Jennifer DeLapperquette and Aaron Sherber, the co-editors of the critical edition of the score of the original ballet version of Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland, published as part of a series of critical editions called Music of the United States of America, or MUSA. MUSA is a joint venture between the Recent Researches in Music series of editions and the American Musicological Society, with a lot of funding support from the National Endowment of Humanities. The series aims to reflect the breadth of American music and includes editions of musicals, popular songs from different eras, art music, and various kinds of folk music. Published through AR Editions, the Appalachian Spring Score was released in 2020. Premiered in 1944, Aaron Copeland and the ballet's choreographer, Martha Graham, collaborated closely in developing the work, which won the 1945 Pulitzer Prize for Music. However, its very popularity has obscured the performance and publication history of the ballet's music. In fact, most people are familiar with the orchestral suite Copeland arranged from the ballet's music rather than with the original composition. Even Aaron Copeland lost track of the many different published versions of the score, and this confusion no doubt complicated the editor's job. I'm happy to welcome Jennifer and Aaron to New Books in Music to discuss not just this iconic and fascinating composition, but also the process, challenges, and rewards of making a critical edition. Welcome, Aaron and Jennifer. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So before we even talk about Appalachian Spring, can we just go over what a critical edition actually is and how is it different from a regular edition of music? Well, Um, perhaps uh, Jennifer can start with that question. The main difference between a critical edition and a performing edition is that the critical edition has a lot of um, extra uh, notes, additional information um, for the the person who's who's using it, um, it's kind of intended more for scholars um, than for a, a performance purpose. And um, but it it's also very interesting. I I would hope to anybody who's who's got an interest in the history, and you know, we have we have an essay that goes into the the history of the work's genesis and. Um, the emergence of the different versions and, you know, so, so there's some substantial background information. And then there's also um, information about all of the decisions that were made to um, actually decide which notes, you know, we're as, as editors, we're comparing, we're first identifying and then comparing all the sources and decisions have to be made about exactly which notes. Is this a C or is it is it held over or is it a rest, you know, in the, on the down? We, so there's a lot of specific decisions that have to be made. Um, some are more significant than others, but they're all described, the decisions and what the options are for 
um, the conductor or someone who, who wants to. So um, I'll direct this next question to Erin. Um, how did you two get involved in this project? And how did you decide to co-edit it rather than work by, your, um, by yourself on this project? And of course, Jennifer should answer this as well. But maybe we can start <laughs> with Erin first. Sure. Uh, Jennifer got in touch with me in 2014 about a uh, a different version of Appalachian Spring, or sort of a related question, having to do with uh, an orchestral version of the complete ballet. And it was something Jennifer was looking into. And uh, she'd gotten in touch with me uh, because I was for, uh, at the time, for 19 years, I was the conductor and, and music director of the Martha Graham Dance Company. So I had a lot of experience with with Appalachian Spring and with its history. And Jennifer was trying to, wanted to know what I knew about that orchestral version. Uh, and in the course of our discussions about that and things that came out of that, that led to two things. It led, first of all, to the completion of this orchestral version, which was premiered in 2016. Uh, and then a, a, a further outcome of those discussions was just the idea that we should take uh, some of this information that, that the two of us had about uh, about Appalachian Spring and its development and uh, and and see if we could put together a critical edition uh, of the ballet. Right. Yeah. And I I would add to that that um, uh, it I I work as an, a a consulting musicologist for the Aaron Copeland Fund, which is. Um, an organization that Copeland created before his death um, that he created for the purpose of encouraging and improving knowledge and appreciation of contemporary music. Um, it's also the copyright holder. The Copeland Fund is the copyright holder for Copeland's intellectual property. Um, and um, one of the first projects they assigned to me in uh, around 2012 was um, to sort out the materials for Appalachian Spring because they decided it was time to um, re-engrave the materials and and clean out just clean out some of the old parts because in some cases they were distributing things that were um, handwritten scores and parts and people will um, always perform Appalachian Spring regardless of the state of the materials but we thought that it really needed to be um, cleaned up so that was one of my first uh, big projects and Aaron became part of that. Uh, Vivian Perlis, who is um, the late Vivian Perlis, who who is uh, uh, an oral historian and helped write Copeland's autobiography with him, she um, she said to me uh, a very um, interesting thing happened. Um, this um, conductor, young conductor named Aaron Sherber came to our offices in New York and he showed us this fascinating score that had been the conducting score for Martha, the Martha Graham Dance Company for, for decades. And it had all these interesting markings in it. Um, and she said, he's a very personable young man. You really should get in touch with him. And, um, so, um, yeah, I I did get in touch with him, and and he's just a fount of knowledge. I remember one of our early email communications. Um, in one of them, Aaron said to me, um, "If you'd if you'd be interested, um, I'd like to go down to the Library of Congress and have a spelunking expedition or something to that effect." And and we did. Um, we met in the performing arts reading room, and I remember as soon as the the boxes came 
And his, as soon as his eyes fell on the music, um, I don't remember if it was a sketch or if it was a score, but you could just see um, he's, he kind of sat up straight and you could tell that he was hearing the music. And not only that, but kind of was aware of who was on stage in his mind's eye. Um, you know, do you need to slow down a little bit before you get to the next downbeat um, so that the, the dancer can align themselves correctly? And I, I just thought, you know, if he, he can do this for any measure of the score, this this is going to be a pretty invaluable um, a compliment to my, you know, I've, I've been working in the Copeland collection since the mid nineties when it first opened. And um, so the, the historical research part, you know, um, I just thought his, his um, experience would be an, an amazing kind of uh, compliment to what I could bring to this project. And it's definitely, it's definitely proven true. So Jennifer, I'll um, direct this question to you first. Um, I, Musa generally, if we look across the, the series that this is being published through, they usually publish things that um, are designed to sort of spur interest by performers and scholars in, in um, a repertoire of music or a particular composer. I mean, they have music in there from Dudley Buck and Lou Harrison, people that aren't as well known, but Appalachian Spring and Aaron Copeland, you can't get much more well known than that in American art music. So why choose Aaron Copeland at all for a music edition? And then this particular piece over, you know, so many other pieces he composed, including other um, ballets from the same kind of mid 40s period. Well, um, yeah, one of the Musa goals is to avoid music already available through other channels. Um, and at the time that we made this edition, it wasn't available through other channels. It was um, it was only available in Copeland's original handwritten um, handwritten manuscripts. Um, and also the the complication, the, the very, as you said in your introduction, the very familiarity people have with the um, the work um, has kind of it's led to a proliferation of versions, which really needed to be straightened out. And, and also um, the, the fact that the Martha Graham Dance Company still uses this score makes it, um, you know, a living contemporary thing, but it hasn't been available, basically, is, is the short answer. And, and the versions need to be sorted out. Um, so... That, that would be my answer. Yeah, you know, and it, it really let us do a couple of different things with this critical edition. Uh, one is, um, as Jennifer mentioned, there, there are several different versions of Appalachian Spring, of, of this music. Uh, and in Jennifer, in her extended essay that, that opens the edition, is able to lay out sort of the history of these different versions and distinguish among them and give people a guide to figuring out what it is they might be listening to or performing. And that that's very helpful because all kinds of people who have experience either as listeners or performers of Appalachian Spring don't understand these different versions. So to be able to lay that out is, is very helpful. And then I wanted to emphasize something else Jennifer mentioned, which is that this version, the, uh, the original ballet version, has not been available in published form uh, until now. 
um, when Copeland wrote the piece, he he really thought of it as a as something for Martha Graham, something he wrote for her. In fact, at the top of his score, he wrote Ballet for Martha. That was his working title for the piece. And while Graham was alive, she and the Graham Company had the exclusive rights to this ballet version. So as a result, uh, Boozy and Hawks, who's the main publisher for Copeland's works, they never engraved it or offered it for rental because there was no one to no one to rent it, no one who could perform it but the Graham Company. So the only uh, the score basically existed as a copy of Copeland's manuscript, and the only available parts were parts that the Graham Company had that were hand copied out by two different copyists at different times, and uh, the piece had never been properly engraved and published in this way. So a critical edition of this work, I you know I think it does fit into those music categories and allowed us to uh, really accomplish both of those, both of those ends. Well, why don't we dig into a little bit about how you actually made the addition and some of the, the challenges that you um, encountered. And one we've sort of talked around a bit, which is um, there are lots of different versions of this, this piece out in publication, but none of them, as you pointed out, are the actual ballet. It's this various versions of the orchestral suite. Can you sort of break down what sources you you had to draw from and that sort of thing? And I will uh, ask Aaron that question first. Sure. Um, the, the, the version that's presented in this score is the original ballet version. It was written for 13 instruments and premiered as a ballet by the Martha Graham Dance Company. Uh, the very next year in 1945, Copeland uh, shortened and tightened the work to make a suite out of it and orchestrated it for full orchestra. That was premiered in 1945. And as was mentioned earlier, that, that's the version that I think most listeners probably know. For many decades, it was, uh, it was the only version that was performed outside of Graham performances. And it was the only one that was recorded. And so it was the version that most people grew up knowing it. Knowing it, it, it wasn't until much later that uh, you had the possibility of hearing, for example, the suite for 13 instruments. Uh, there were occasional performances of the orchestral suite with some other bits stuck in. We'll talk about those details a little later. Um, uh, but the, the different sources that were available, uh, one of the interesting things was to think about what exactly it was we wanted to present in this score in terms of the music. Uh, is this, it, is this uh, based on the published version of the suite for 13 instruments, and then we just add back in the missing pieces? Or do we actually go back and start with that original text that, that Copeland wrote for Graham? The, the suite and the ballet even the spots where the music is identical, which is most of most of the suite, there are details that are different. There are um, uh, meanings of sections that are different. There are tempos and dynamics that are different. And so figuring out what your uh, base text is for the critical edition uh, was, was the first step. And since we were doing this of the ballet version, it seemed it made sense to take that manuscript score that Copeland had, had delivered to Graham as, as the base text. And we had a bunch of things that we were able to, to use to fill in. Um, Copeland, and the, several of these are in the Copeland collection down at the Library of Congress. There are two versions of a piano short score for the piece. These, this, uh, the, the music that Copeland uh, wrote out sort of piano-ish, piano two or three staves uh, as he was working on the, the completed score for the ballet. 
there's uh, a manuscript score for that orchestral suite. There are marked up versions of the short score where he, where, where Copeland put either some conducting notes in there or notes about how he wanted to orchestrate certain things. There are the published versions of these various things. Um, and then a final layer on top of this, uh, which was helpful in, in certain respects, and Jennifer mentioned this earlier, there is a, a copy of the score that is, that's in the possession of the Graham Company. It's a, a copy of Copeland's manuscript that dates from sometime in the 1940s. It may even have been the score that the premiere was conducted from, but it has handwriting in the score that I know dates back to the 1940s. And that preserves uh, several decades of Graham performance practice in terms of how the score was used and interpreted in ways that might flesh out or in sometimes contradict what Copeland's original uh, intent was. So um, you mentioned at the beginning, Jennifer, that one of the differences between a regular edition and a critical edition <clears throat> is the transparency of how you decide to make decisions in both the introductory essay and then the footnotes in a critical edition. Did you two, um, you know, how did you decide, obviously it sounds like the the original Martha Graham score and, and so forth were your sort of Bible among uh, of among everything, but did you have sort of a go to score outside of that where you thought oh, this one just seems particularly authoritative, or we like the way you know there's something about the uh, interpretation that's in this this other marked up score that you found yourself returning to over and over again, or or that's not how it works. So sort uh, of explain <laughs> explain how that works. I mean, in the case of Appalachian Spring, the um, the original base source that we're working with um, is in exceptionally good shape compared to some works of, of music um, that don't have a single clean authoritative kind of um, starting point. So um, the Martha Graham uh, score really was, it's legible. Um, th that was, and, and it records some of the performance practice of the Graham Company. I um, I worked a lot from uh, a 55.3 <laughs> um, ARCO. That was its, its Library of Congress sort of uh, classification number. It was a score, it was a, an Ozolid copy of the original manuscript that Copeland had gone back to later and marked the specific differences between the original ballet and the suite. Um, and we're not exactly sure when he went back and did that. We have some ideas, but um, that, uh, yeah, that, that particular score with Copeland's markings in it was, was really uh, helpful to me. I'll Jennifer's just follow that up with you. Oh, of course, Aaron. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Sorry, Jennifer's point is 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 right on, which is that the that the manuscript is very clean. It's generally very free from mistakes. It's generally a very good source, um, and and as I mentioned, that was the source for all of the Graham performances since 1944. But there are certain things that are missing or unclear in that. Um, there are places where. Uh, a crescendo might be in one staff, but not in the other strings, for example, or uh, something might have a dynamic in one place, but not in another, or an instrument comes in after a number of rests and doesn't have an appropriate dynamic there. 
So that that was a lot of the kind of choices that we had to make in terms of bringing those in from other sources. Um, you know, we tended to prioritize, um, uh, in in part, the short score to get intent of what Copeland was going for, uh, and then after that, other sources that we have uh, in the thirteen instrument line, because when the when the piece was rescored for orchestra there were a number of interpretive changes that Copeland made that we did not want to bring back uh, into this version of the score. Well, that was sort of what I was going with with the ne- my next question that I started <laughs> with, Jennifer. Um, but maybe, maybe Aaron, you're a better person to answer this. But the question really is, what are the biggest differences that you see between the score that you've produced and the ballet score versus the um, orchestral arrangement that, of course, more people are really familiar with. Can you give us sort of a general sense of the big differences? And I, I don't know who is yeah. best positioned to answer that. Erin <laughs> will answer it. Okay. <laughs> I'll take a first stab. Uh, yeah, so when you're talking about the 13-instrument the ballet and then the orchestral suite, which was the the next version, you've, you've got two different kinds of changes. I mean, the orchestration changes are pretty obvious. You go from 13 instruments to a full symphony orchestra. Uh, but then there were all the structural changes that Copeland made. And, and what he was really doing, uh, the ballet, if you play it straight through, is somewhere around, say, 32 minutes, let's say, whereas the suite is about 24 minutes. Uh, so what he was doing was tightening up the structure. And in particular, he was taking out music that he felt was there primarily for the dance. In other words, a rhythmic figure that was repeated five or six times because of what was going on on stage, where really if you're sitting in the concert hall, you only need to hear it twice. It doesn't add anything to hear those extra repetitions. Uh, Or music that... uh, that he felt didn't didn't contribute to uh, a a good concert hall experience, and I'll say I think he did a fantastic job with the suite. I can I understand why he made the choices he made, and I understand why I think especially at the time I, I why that why he saw that as a more enjoyable form for this music to be heard. Uh, at the same time, I think there's a very good case to be made for concert performances of the ballet, even without the dancers on stage. I I don't think it. I don't think it loses anything. It's just different from the suite. In terms of a couple of specific things that were changed, uh, there's a section towards the beginning of the dance, uh, a, a fairly quiet section, which uh, in the dance is a solo for the, the husband character. Uh, and it's not, it's not very melodically interesting. It's driven by some repeated harmonies and some repeated rhythms. And this is exactly the kind of section that Copeland thought wouldn't necessarily play well in the concert hall. And so he took this section and really cut it down to about a third of its original length. And in the context of the suite, it almost doesn't stand out as its own section. It sounds like a transitional section between what came before and what came after. Whereas in the ballet, it's a fully, it, it's a fully functioning section of the work. Um, the other big change that he made was in the in the second half of the piece, and if listeners are, are familiar with Appalachian Spring, this is the part of the piece that uses uh, simple gifts for a set of uh, theme and variations. In in the ballet, right in the middle of those variations is seven or eight minutes of other music that does not relate to simple gifts, but relates to the scenario that 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 Graham uh, had sketched out. 
And Copeland felt, r- rightly or wrongly, that this music did not, didn't stand on its own in a concert context. And so he basically made one big seven or eight minute cut there to leave you just with the simple gifts theme and variations in that place. That, that's the most significant change that you'd notice between the, the suite and the ballet. Actually, Aaron, I do have a follow-up to that. It occurred to me as you were talking about the ballet that um, perhaps people listening to this know the music but don't actually know anything about the ballet. Can you talk about the the plot of the ballet, kind of give our listeners a sense of, of the ballet? And since you spent 18 years conducting it, I imagine <laughs> you know it quite well. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful work of art. And, you know, it wasn't just... Uh, Graham's choreography and Copeland's music. The, the sets were by the Japanese American sculptor Isamu Noguchi, who worked often with Graham, and they have their own sculptural qualities that they bring beyond just being functioning set pieces. It's just it, it, it's a gorgeous work. But very briefly, it tells the story of uh, a young bride and her husband on their wedding day. Uh, it's a cast of eight dancers. There's there's the bride who was originally danced by Martha Graham, uh, her husband. Um, there is a character called the pioneering woman who sort of represents, it's, it's sort of an earth mother kind of figure, wisdom of the people sort of thing. Um, there's a, uh, there's a revivalist preacher character and the preacher has, uh, four followers, uh, young girls who follow him around basically. Uh, and it's the story of the eight of them. And it starts out with them processing in in front of their farmhouse and there's some parts of the dance that refer to their courtship and some of the uh, the possible dangers and pitfalls of marriage that uh, the bride's a little concerned about and uh, uh, ends with everyone leaving the the, the new groom and bride uh, in in their house as the, as the sun sets over the horizon um, so so we get a sense. So there's this overarching story. And so for the orchestral suite, he had to sort of change things around so that the, it sounds like the story, the stuff that you needed for the story that was a little repetitive, as you were saying, they would cut that out. But my understanding, there is a version that puts back in a lot of the music that he took out initially, um, uh, initially this Ormandy version. Can uh, Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about that final version of the orchestral suite, or that, I, I don't know if it was the final, but a version of the orchestral suite that's a little different from from the others? Sure. Um, well, as Aaron mentioned, the there's one big cut from the ballet, and that's about seven or eight minutes long. And it um, it's it falls between the second to last and the last statement of the simple gifts theme, um, which is an interesting way to put it because I think of it more as a, um, as a section that, well, it's a, it's contrasting. It's like dramatic contrast. The music is, um, the sections in Graham's, uh, scripts call it, Fear in the night, um, day of wrath, and moment of crisis, and so it's it's really kind of dark, turbulent um, music, and that is the stuff that's taken out. So the Ormandy version um, reinserts the main cut, the eight or nine minute cut, which is full of contrasting music, um, 
fear in the night, day of wrath, moment of crisis. Um, it's turbulent, kind of uh, agitated music. Um, and um, that section, um, Copeland, re Copeland orchestrated that section for the suites, full orchestra, for the same ensemble that was playing the suite. Um, and he, at Ormandy's request in 1954, he sent it to Ormandy, um, who wanted to perform it with Martha Graham and her dance company dancing live. She had been on a tour in Europe, and she came back, um, and he kind of wanted to have a grand um, a grand homecoming performance, because Graham, of course, was from Pennsylvania originally. Um, and it turned out that um, they found out shortly before the performance that in reinserting that cut was not going to make a score that the Graham company could dance its choreography to because of some of the changes of the sort that Aaron just described. Um, so the 1954 um, insert, we call it insert six, um, kind of ushered in a new, a, a new version, a new structure um, that retained the cuts, smaller cuts in the first half of the ballet. And it also retained a different order of the variations which had choreographic importance because of who was dancing to balance out the different uh, dancers' sections. Um, and, you know, so the counts would be off, the section lengths would be off, and that's why you couldn't dance to it. Um, and, and Aaron, and I, especially Aaron, did some um, interviews of dancers who remembered that performance, and we determined that they... They never danced to something uh, where the choreography was put in in different orders, where the sections were reordered. They always did the same thing. And so, you know, what we think happened was that for the actual performance, um, Ormandy uh, probably used the Graham Company score and augmented the strings. And there's a history that Aaron can speak to about um, Copeland allowing the Graham Company to to augment the thirteen instrument um, ensemble, um, but what happened though after that version, af after the the performance that Ormandy did was that he then recorded it. Um, he recorded the full orchestra suite with that insert shoehorned in, and the program notes on the Columbia record made it sound like the Graham company danced to that version and it was billed as the complete ballet. So um, that was really the beginning of a lot of confusion about the contents, the musical contents of the complete ballet. Is it really complete um, or is it the suite? But in a sense, you know, that, to jump back, that's that's where Jennifer and I uh, started. That's where Jennifer called me in 2014 to talk about this. And this was something that had been on my radar for a long time because you, you read in Copeland biographies uh, about how he orchestrated the ballet for Ormandy in the 50s. And what intrigued me about that claim was I had never heard evidence of that. The various recordings, the, the Ormandy recording, um, there were a couple of recordings by uh, Leonard Slatkin, 
there was a recording by Michael Tilson Thomas that that have various claims of being complete, but I could tell they weren't complete. I mean, if you listen to them and follow along with the ballet score, it's pretty obvious there are still some things missing and some things rearranged. So that's sort of where Jennifer and I started in 2014. And one of the things that came out of this uh, was the idea of completing that orchestral version of the ballet. Uh, they're out of a uh, little under a thousand measures of music in Appalachian Spring. I think it's 950 something. And almost all of them had been orchestrated by Copeland at some point. There were little inserts here and there in addition to the big one that Jennifer talked about. But there were still, I think, about 50 measures of music that had never, never been orchestrated by Copeland in any form. And so one of the jobs, one of the tasks that the uh, the Copeland Fund authorized was to to get this completed. And they worked with uh, a composer and conductor named David Newman. Uh, and he orchestrated those remaining measures in the style of Copeland. I mean, something designed to fit in with the other music that Copeland had written. And so what what premiered in 2016 was this completed version of the full ballet for orchestra. So to go back to Jennifer's uh, criterion, this is now a version that the Graham Company could dance to. And in fact, the choreography has been performed to this orchestral version, though not by the Graham Company, by a couple, uh, some of our licensees. Um, but that, you know, that whole story of how that orchestral version came apart is sort of the, uh, sort of frames, frames our collaboration and, and is what got us to the, to the critical edition of the original ballet. Well, one of the things about this edition that, that I don't know if it's unique, but I certainly have never seen it in a critical edition is that you've included pictures or stills from the original choreography of Martha Graham and her company doing the ballet above every measure or every few measures. So how did you get those stills? Why did you decide to do that? Can you sort of talk about that decision? And I don't know. Um, it, Jennifer, tell me about that decision. <laughs> when I was in 2014, there was a, a Society for American Music conference, and that's when I first um, kind of shopped the idea around of maybe doing an edition, or I actually just spoke with the Musa um, uh, editor at that point. And um, in one of the conversations I had, someone who was on the Musa board said, you know, what would be really interesting is if you could have some kind of representation of the dance on the pages. And that just stuck in my head. Um, and it came to make more and more sense because um, we wanted to reestablish Graham's creative presence in the work. You know, this is, this is a music edition. We're very clear that, that the function of the notation on the page is to allow um, musicians to reproduce the sounds of the score. But the work is really um, not about just the notes. There's there's that really important choreographic um, uh, vision really that underlay the whole the whole project. You know, Graham's Graham's scripts, which are available online at the Library of Congress um, and through our AppalachianSpring.info a website that goes with this edition. Um, Graham's Graham had a, a really 
clear artistic vision of the the moods and the the characters she wanted to convey. Um, it's not so much a story as it is um, a series of of evocative kind of moments, um, it, it, and you know it's kind of modernist that way. And that time is not quite. She talks in her script some about how we suspend time in our own thoughts and look back with nostalgia and things like that. But um, so Graham, you know, and this ties in somewhat with the origin of the ballet, Graham's scripts really gave Copeland um, the structure, the dramatic flow that he followed. So the, the overall shape of the ballet, I have come to think was really kind of determined by Graham and the timings that she wrote in the scripts. You know, where are things going to be um, turbulent or a little dark um, versus, you know, where do they return to comfort or triumph or, or, or just peaceful resolution? Um, and so she, her vision was really behind the work. Um, and then even though she threw away, well, she didn't, she didn't follow her own scripts. Once she got Copeland's music, she, she let the music inspire her. Um, so Copeland was actually a little surprised sometimes at, at the premiere when he saw a different kind of dancing to the music he'd written than, than he had thought he was writing for. But, um, but the, the structure of the ballet um, and the dramatic flow was really from Graham. Also, Copeland, um, I think part of the reason that Copeland um, didn't kind of stand up and, and, and sort out clearly which versions were which versions is because it was Martha's music. I mean, it, he associated it with her. And in fact, for, for decades, I, I think until about the, the 21st century, um, whenever the suite was printed on the cover, it said um, Appalachian Spring, and then the subtitle right on the cover, Ballet for Martha. Um, it didn't say suite. You know, so he, he, I think that just goes to show how, how integral her persona, her personality, her, her vision, her, you know, how, how integral all of that was to the music that, that he ended up producing. And so we wanted, you know, the purpose of, of, of these photos is we really had to kind of think through what do we want this to do because it's not like music notation. It's not giving instructions for reproducing the choreography. Um, but it, it's really taking a snapshot of the ballet at one point in time. It's not even saying that this is the ideal performance. It's, it's illustrating um, and kind of representing Graham's, Graham's concept in a, in a visual way. Um, and we, we do want it to give people, uh, we, we want them to have a sense of, of what's happening on the stage, which characters are dancing primarily, and also how the, the shapes of the dancers' arms can, um, can mimic the, or echo the, um, slanted lines of Noguchi's sets. You know, there, there's so much rich visual, um, symbolism there that we, we wanted to, 
to um, represent that. So we've got on each page of the score, we have two images. So you've got the, you can picture a score on the lower, maybe two thirds of the page. And the top margin is very wide, but in that margin, we've put two pictures on, on each of the, you know, I'm just paging through here, the 183 pages of score. So times two images, um, you know, that's, that's how many images you get. And then there's um, how we decided to use the um, Criterion video. That's, that's kind of the second part of this. Um, it, it was a 1958 video. I think it was released in 59. Um, and Aaron might remember more about this, but the, the reason we picked it is because it had been, um, it had Martha Graham dancing in it and it was newly restored. Um, they had painstakingly gone through and removed uh, imperfections in the 1958 film. Um, and so we got a generous grant from the AMS to pay for access to their, to Criterion's master. Um, and, and then we chose 300 and some stills out of that master um, to use in our score. So when you look through the score, do you get a pretty, I mean, were you careful to make sure that the images were actually mm. associated with the measures that the image is over, or is it more just sort of, it's basically <laughs> in the right spot? Aaron. It's uh, it's pretty close. I mean, it's pretty close to being over measures that that go with that music. One of the tricky things is there's not if if you see a danced performance of this, in very large part, there's not always an exact correspondence. This move always goes on this note. I mean, you can't draw vertical lines in the score necessarily connecting specific events. There's a certain fluidity uh, of correspondences there. Um, but but we did we did uh, try to keep the to keep the images over or perhaps just adjacent to the music where it happens so that they they sort of they go together. It's never the case where you're listening to music and and the images from something that happened a page ago or or the next page or something. Uh, they 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 do go together in that way, and I think you can you can flip through them as a flip book that way and sort of keep track of where you are in the dance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one really interesting. Thing to me was uh, the differences in in music notation versus a visual representation of the dance, um, because in one or two measures, um, a dancer can leap off the floor, you know, six times, um, but we only get to choose one of those leaps. So, you know, because there just isn't in, in two measures, there's not enough space to put to to um, show the multi multiple um, motions. So, um, yeah, the tempo of the dance and the tempo of the music and how many how many events happen in a given space of time really um, doesn't line up very well. Um, but we, I mean, we we still we still think it's a very valuable thing to do because it is the right person on stage above. <laughs> the section of music, you know, and you, you can get a sense of this is music where the bride and groom are dancing together, or this is music where the followers are chasing around the preacher on stage or, um, and yeah, I, I think it's, 
it's worth doing despite the the inherent imprecision of the of the um, images with the score. I wanted to expand on on one thing that Jennifer had mentioned. Yes. She mentioned these these scripts that Graham had sent to Copeland. I just want to say a quick word about how they work together because one of the really interesting things during my time at the Graham Company, one of the things I really enjoyed was uh, the the Graham Company was founded in 1926. Uh, and from the 1930s until the 1970s, uh, all but three uh, of Graham's new dances used commissioned music. And that's something that's really significant. If you look back at the early history of modern dance in the 20th century, generally speaking, choreographers would sort of have an idea for a piece and they would find an existing piece of music that had sort of the right kind of mood. And then they would choreograph into and around that music and decorate the music. And one of the things that comes out of modern dance with Graham, but also her contemporaries, is this idea that with modern dance, the ideas of the choreographer need to come first, that they're really paramount. And the music should frame the choreography rather than the choreography decorating the music. So in her early years of working with commissioned scores, what Graham did is she often would bring composers into the studio with her. And they would do things together. While Graham is experimenting with movement, either her own movement or with, with her company, the composers are at the piano experimenting with, with, with musical phrases that go with it so that they really build something up as a collaboration. Now, when you get to the early 1940s, as Graham starts working with composers like Copeland who are more prominent and don't necessarily have time to come sit in her studio while she works, she develops a different method of working with composers, which is that she writes out these very detailed, very descriptive scenarios, scripts, descriptions of how she sees the ballet, a, a kind of prose treatment of, um, of the themes that are involved and the characters and a description of the action. And, and she wrote in a beautifully descriptive way. Um, and so when she worked with Copeland, there were three or four different versions of these that she would send to him and they'd have some conversations and she'd make some revisions and send him some changes. Maybe she had a different thought about how some action was going to play out. And as Jennifer mentioned, these the, the copies that she sent to Copeland are in the Copeland collection at the Library of Congress. And you can see where Copeland has annotated them. He's written, uh, this is about three minutes long. This is about two and a half minutes long. He's written some adjectives of his own to describe the sort of music he wanted to write to go with it. So when he wrote the score, when he wrote this ballet score that, that's in this edition, he was taking Graham's scenarios and drawing on his experience scoring for film at that point, and really, in a sense, scoring her scenarios. And you can... You can also take the, the same way that we put images in the score of the completed dance. You can go through these scenarios and follow along with them as you listen to the score. And you can hear what Copeland was responding to when he wrote this section of music and this section of music. It's really, it's a remarkably close collaboration in that way. So having these images from the completed dance, and, and as Jennifer mentioned, when, when Graham got the score from Copeland, she changed her mind again about a few things. Um, but it followed the, the, the broad outlines. And so, again, it was a way of bringing the two of them together again, because even though Graham didn't, didn't write any of the notes, she was responsible for, for the shape of this and for the inspiration behind the notes that Copeland wrote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm smiling because I, I'm remembering uh, one of the letters that Graham wrote to Copeland 
um, during the summer when he was in Mexico and she was uh, choreographing, working with the score that he delivered to her. Um, and she said, I've been swearing at that not so good script I sent you. you know, it's, um, but it's something to the extent of, you know, what, what I've done is simplified somewhat, but I think it's a great improvement and the music just inspires me. And, you know, so she, she even admitted that she wanted to change her mind. I know you said that this wasn't really necessarily designed to be a performing score, but do you anticipate that um, whether it's the Martha Graham company or another company will use this score um, as the um, score that they'll utilize in a performance or um, is this strictly for scholarly um, and sort of the interest by composer performers might want to look at it, but not necessarily have it on their stand yeah. when, when, uh, when well, it comes you know, it's an interesting question. And, and often, um, so with a lot of the other Musa editions that AR puts out there, they're often music that is, uh, in public domain and is not available anywhere else. And so AR also prints performing versions of these materials. In this case, um, Appalachian Spring is, is still under copyright and is published by Boozy, but we were, the, we have an interesting arrangement with them in that uh, Boozy has Boozy is making available performing materials that correspond to this score, and when I say correspond, I mean it's got all the same notes. It's got none of the written material, but for example, one thing they had to do if you look in a critical edition. Um, let's say there's a crescendo that Copeland wrote in the first violins, but didn't write it in the second violins, even though it's clearly implied. So in the critical edition, we've added that crescendo, but it's a dotted crescendo to indicate that it was added or a dotted slur to indicate that that was added and was not in the manuscript. If we add a dynamic, it's in brackets to indicate that that was also something that was added. So the performing materials that you get from Boozy follow the critical edition, but remove all those signifiers. Uh, because someone just performing this isn't particularly interested in whether whether this piano was added by analogy to somewhere else or whether it was actually in the original score. So you can rent those materials. Those are available from Boozy. And we expect that anyone performing the ballet, uh, whether with the Graham Company or a concert performance of the ballet suite, uh, not the ballet suite, the ballet version, uh, when you rent these materials from Boozy, this is what you're what you're going to receive, or these these materials that are based on this critical edition. Right. Yeah, and that was um, part of the the collaborative effort of getting this edition um, printed, making it a reality, <laughs> was um, taking all these different entities' interests um, in and and making sure that everyone agreed um, that you know that their interests were being were being met that that ar's amazing standards for critical editions and their tradition was being upheld and that boozy and hawks was going to be able to have their um rental parts you know going through um through that organization as they uh normally do with any of copeland's works um and of course the yeah the muse of people and the copeland fund who have you know just reputations and a larger vision that, that this all had to fit in with. I mean, there were, there were times when I thought I'm just a musicologist. I can't, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't know it would require diplomacy to uh, get, get all these uh, 
interested parties. But that's really that's part of it. You know, when you when you apply to do an addition, you have to demonstrate. Um, you you have to convince the the committee that oversees this whole series that the rights can be obtained because they don't want to put in all the the work to uh, to put this together and then have it not you know have it get held up by some rights problem um, and and we should mention um, that the engraving for this edition was done by Philip Rothman who's the editorial director at the Copeland Fund and he just gave endless um, time to us, to this project, to to help it uh, come together and so that we could use the same basic uh, engraving files for both the Boozy, um, the Boozy materials and the Musa edition so that they, they really, it's the same files just with some tweaks as Aaron mentioned. Um, and then Andrew Custer at Musa um, really helped us. He's the executive editor. He he helped us navigate through all of the steps required to get everything together, and so that he he was part of the collaboration that this edition itself represents. And you know, we hope that having this available and having this out there will lead to more concert performances of the ballet score. I know people are mm-hmm. very used to the the suite version, and I know Copeland. Uh, at, at least in the 40s when he did this, uh, had had a preference for the sweet version and we're talking about a concert format. I, I think the ballet version is wonderful and I think that even in concert, it tells a very different story. It takes the audience mm-hmm. on a very different kind of journey. For my money, and I admit that I'm a little biased, but but for my money, it's a more interesting and complex journey, particularly in the second half of the piece. Uh, I really like the way the second half unfolds dramatically in the ballet uh, as opposed to the suite. And and the hope is that, you know, conductors who are performing this and get these materials from Boozy uh, might take the time to also look at the critical edition, either if they're, if they're near a good music library that has a copy of it, or it's certainly something that people can, can buy for themselves to, to have a better understanding of the, the work that went into this and, and things that, that, uh, that underlie some of these decisions. And I'll, I'll say one other thing that, that about, the fact that it's so nice to have these newly engraved performance materials. I, I mentioned earlier that while Graham was alive, uh, only the Graham company was allowed to perform the ballet version. Uh, one consequence of that was that when Graham died in 1991 and suddenly Boozy was able to rent this to other people, Boozy realized they didn't have any materials at all. Uh, and what they did essentially was call up the Graham company and say, hey, can you send us, a, send us one of your sets so we can make copies? And so from 1991 until basically last year, if you rented the ballet for a concert performance, the, the orchestral materials that you got were Xeroxes of these hand copied parts that had been made for the Graham company, complete with all kinds of little penciled in, uh, you know, changes in Boeing and little things. I mean, they, they didn't clean them up at all before they were Xerox. They just, they needed materials they could get out for rental. So the, from an orchestra, from an orchestra member's point of view, the difference between the materials that you would have gotten two years ago and the part you get to play from now, uh, is really a very, very big difference. And, Hopefully, it makes it a little more approachable for for orchestras and conductors to have these, uh, you know, very nicely designed and professionally engraved materials. 
Well, it's clear that that was a huge project in and of itself, and 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 um, Jennifer really makes it clear how many people, more than the editors, are even involved in some in a project like this. As you now have finished this part of it, um, do you? Uh, I'll ask Jennifer first. What's next on your um, agenda as you um, well, leave right this now, project? I'm going behind? back to a manuscript that I wrote, a, a book about Copeland in the 1950s um, that I finished uh, a draft of in, in 2006. Um, and it deals with Copeland and the McCarthy era and his reputation and all the politics, but also his, uh, his image with the public. And so I, I deal with issues of middle brow and things in that. And so I'm um, just trying to get that out the door. <laughs> uh, so that's my current project. And Aaron, what are you up to? Uh, I'm working on something that's occupied me on and off for a number of years. Um, uh, I studied conducting at the Peabody Conservatory with a teacher named Frederick Prausnitz, who was a very well-known, very respected teacher of conducting and a conductor in his own right. Uh, he has a book on conducting that he wrote in 1983 called Score and Podium, which has long been out of print. Uh, the, the original edition has a whole variety of things that, um, let's say, slip past editors and copy editors, uh, misprints and typos and things in the wrong place and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, I've been working on essentially uh, correcting that text. Uh, Maestro Prowsen passed away in 2004, and the, the latest set of proofs and things came to me, and uh, I've been working on getting that corrected with the hope that it'll see the light of day. For my money, it's really one of the great books about conducting. Well, that sounds exciting. And if you're getting page proofs, you can't be too far away from the end. So that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank both of you for being here. And just as a reminder, this is Kristen Turner and New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Jennifer DeLette Burkett and Aaron Sherber about their critical edition of the original ballet version of Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland, published by AR Editions as part of the Music in the United States of America. America series. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining me Thanks. today.